morning, everyone. We'll have the Bible reading now. There's actually two um, books that we're reading from. First one is from Isaiah and the second one is Romans. The first Bible reading comes from Isaiah chapter 40, um, verse 12 through to 14. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? And the second reading comes from verse 18. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that, would, that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. And then the second um, Bible reading, or the third Bible reading, comes from Romans chapter 9 in the New Testament. Verses 14 to 29. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people 
who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one, who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kate. Uh, Let me take you back a few years and tell you about my friend Tim. Uh, He walks into the soccer club that I play for. Uh, He makes himself at home. Uh, He's a fun guy, good soccer player, and he just fits into the team really well. Uh, We become friends, and we start to have deeper conversations. He tells me about some strange spiritual experiences he's had, weird coincidences that he can't explain. And I share with him some of my spiritual experiences, the the hope and the purpose and the peace that I find in Christ, the the evidence of his power at work in my life. He visits church and he really likes it. We begin reading the Bible together. As we're reading through Mark's Gospel, he sees Jesus calling people to respond with repentance and faith. But he has a question for me. How is God fair? How is it fair for God to allow some people to hear the gospel and trust Jesus and be saved while others don't respond? He pushes it a step further. Some people are born in places where they can know lots of Christians. They can hear the gospel taught clearly. There are lots of social and relational encouragements that make it easy to trust God. On the other hand, some are born in places where there are are no Christians, or very few, and the cost of following Christ is very high. It seems like God has stacked the deck, making it far easier for some people to know Jesus than others. And if Tim and I had read Romans 9 together, he would have seen that his worst fears were confirmed. That's exactly what we heard last week. If if you're here, you remember Paul says in verse 11 of Romans 9, just before what we heard today, he says, Before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand. The secret's out. Tim is right. God has stacked the deck, making choices before we were born, not based on anything we'd done, good or bad. He's made choices that influence our destiny. And so we have to ask, is God unjust? Because it certainly sounds like it. If God chooses to show his mercy and blessings to particular people and not to others, not because of what they've done, but even before they were born, how's that fair? I was talking to another friend uh, who said that it's like ice creams at kids' church. Let me explain. 
Uh, imagine I'm a kids' church leader, and one week I decide to bring along some treats. Okay, an esky full of ice creams. And when the time comes, I just get three out. Just, just three. I give ice creams to three kids and all the rest miss out. How's that fair? Even if it was a gift, the fact that I would only give it to three kids, it just seems completely unfair. What about the rest of the class? So, is God unjust? And this is not just an intellectual question, it's a, it's a personal one too. It's a personal one for, for some of us here. What about us? What about some of the people we love? It might be our, our parents, our, our siblings or children or friends. What if they want to know God and be reconciled but God has already made up his mind on them. How would you feel in their shoes? What if the only reason that my friends are not Christians is because God has set his heart against them? Is that what this means? Friends, we ask these questions from our enlightened 21st century perspective. But they're not just modern questions. Now, the earliest Christians raised these same issues too. We can see that because Paul knew that his listeners would ask this question. Because that's where he goes in verse 14 at the start of the passage that, that Kate read to us from Romans 9. He says, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? So this is a big question. It's, it's emotionally heavy and it's intellectually heavy. I've been in uh, small groups that avoid predestination like the plague, right? Maybe you have too from the sound of some of those chuckles. Uh, It's that dreaded black hole that we skirt around, desperately hoping that we're not going to be sucked in by this mysterious doctrine uh, because we know that the rabbit hole is deep and it leads to awkward questions and awkward places like this one. Is God unjust? But friends, God's word raises this question for us. He wants us to wrestle with it. Not because we're going to get a simple one-line answer here. But so that we can dig into our presuppositions, challenge some of our assumptions about God and ourselves. That's what we're going to do this morning. So uh, let's buckle up. We're going down the rabbit hole, okay? And we're going to see where God's word leads us. Uh, Have a look at verse 14 and 15 with me. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It sounds like Paul is just restating his point, right? His point about election. God has mercy on whom he wants. Right, Paul, that's actually the problem. It doesn't solve it if you just say it again. Why are you taking us on this tour of Exodus just to make your point again? But if we look closely, uh, he's actually making a really important point here. He's saying, God is not a vending machine. God is not a vending machine. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, You remember the story of Exodus? The Hebrews are in slavery in Egypt 
Pharaoh's not going to let them go. God hears their cries for mercy and he has compassion on them. He rescues them from Pharaoh's hand uh, with plagues and judgment on Egypt. And now they're travelling in the wilderness and he feeds them with bread and meat. And then one day while Moses is with God, the Hebrews decide to give up on God. They make a golden calf and bow down and worship it. They worship this lump of of metal instead of the true God. The true God who's just saved them. And Moses pleads with God to spare them and he asks to see God's glory. And God says in Exodus 33, 19, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, to, to Moses, and I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's where Paul's quoting from. So in other words, God's saying, yes, Moses, I'll show you my glory, I'll show you my goodness, my name. Remember, God's name is about his his character, who he truly is. Moses, I'll show you what's awesome and amazing about me. You'll see that I'm not like an idol made out of melted gold. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'll have mercy on whom I choose. God will freely show mercy to people who've rejected him. People who've forfeited any right to his favour. He will have mercy and compassion on them. Not because they deserve to be taken back. That, That wouldn't be mercy. Mercy implies that they deserve the opposite. But God will freely have mercy. So why is that awesome? Why is that glorious? Because it means that God is not an idol. He's not like a spiritual vending machine. Right, when I want a can of Coke, I, I find a vending machine. Right? I, I give it what it asks for, a few gold coins or a tap of the card these days, and I, I get my Coke. You want good crops. Find yourself a fertility idol. Uh, give it the offering it requires and you can expect good crops. You want good health, find a health idol, pay the price and you should, give, you should get good health. Keep your idol happy, pay the price, it'll look after you. But God is not an idol. He's not a vending machine like that. We can't pay some price to God in exchange for his favour or blessing. We can't buy him off. Have a look at verse 16, makes this point. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. God's salvation, his election, it doesn't depend on our desire or effort. We can't do anything to make God save us. It's not like if we repent or we say the magic words, that will make God save us if he doesn't want to. We can't twist his arm. He's not an idol that we can manipulate or buy off. He's not a vending machine for salvation. This is scary, right? We, we can't do anything to save ourselves. We can't make God save us. It's out of our hands. We're not in control. 
But this is good news. This is good news. Let me tell you why I think it's good news. Because what happens if you can't afford to pay the price? What if you can't afford to pay what the vending machine asks for? You don't pay, you you don't get. It's as simple as that with a vending machine. Sometimes even if you do pay, it gets stuck, right? Then you end up banging on the side or trying to shake it, and you don't want to do that because vending machines, I found out, are more dangerous than sharks. They kill more people than sharks. So it's good news that God is not a vending machine. Maybe you're listening today and you're not sure if God has chosen to show you mercy or not. Maybe you're hoping he will, but you're not that confident. It's scary to think that it's out of your hands. But can I say, if you're anxious about whether God is showing you mercy, then God is already showing you mercy. He hasn't hardened your heart towards him. He softened it. If you had a hard heart, you wouldn't be worrying about what God thought of you. God is showing mercy to you. So take him up on that. You can't do anything to achieve his salvation, not by human desire or effort. We can only trust ourselves to his mercy. Embrace God's mercy. You can pray today and ask God for his forgiveness and his new life. Acknowledge that you can't earn his favour. You can thank him for softening your heart. Repent and turn away from living for yourself and entrust yourself to Christ. Please come and chat to me afterwards. I'd love to talk with you and pray with you about that. People up the front, likewise. God is not a vending machine. He's not an idol and that's good news. It's good news because he's free to show mercy even to those who can't afford it, which is each one of us. But what about the flip side? God's free to have compassion, but is he therefore also free to to condemn and to punish? If he can save us without us deserving it, could he also punish us without us deserving it? Well, let's look at the next couple of verses, 17 and 18. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. God hardens whom he wants to harden. It doesn't sound uh, great, does it? But let's let's dig into Pharaoh's story a bit here. I want you to see that nobody is neutral. Remember Pharaoh? Pharaoh who opposes Moses and he won't let God's people go because his heart is hard. Sometimes Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Sometimes God hardens Pharaoh's heart, we're told. But at the start of that story, Pharaoh is not neutral. His empire had enslaved the Hebrews and tried to kill their baby boys. 
And here's his very first response to Moses in in Exodus chapter 5. When Moses first goes to him and says, the Lord says, let my people go, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh is not neutral. He is already alienated from the true God. He doesn't know God. He's opposed to God and his plans. He won't obey God. And God hardens him. God confirms him in that defiant stance. Every time that he's challenged, Pharaoh doubles down and again and again, refusing to to back down or concede until he can no longer bear the cost. Pharaoh is not someone calling out for God's mercy who God hardens. He's not even neutral towards God. He's an enemy of God. And he's not the only one. Nobody is neutral. Every human, every one of us left to our own devices is alienated from God. We don't know God. We don't obey God. We disregard God. We treat him with contempt. The first three chapters of Romans made this point. No one is righteous, not even one. Friends, God is not the author of our condemnation. He doesn't turn people away who would otherwise come to him. We've all made our choice and rejected God. And so there's nothing we can do to put God in our debt, to make him owe us something, because nobody is neutral. Think of that kids' church example again with the ice creams. It's more like God asks us if we want ice creams. We say no. He lays them out for us. And we say, who wants a stupid ice cream anyway? And we chuck them on the floor. And then he takes an ice cream and touches it to someone's lips. And finally we say, oh, actually that's not too bad. Maybe I will have one of them, thanks. Uh, From what one parent told me, this is not such an unrealistic uh, picture of mealtime with young kids sometimes. It's, It's not a perfect analogy, but it's more accurate than that first picture because nobody's neutral. Nothing we do can make God owe us anything. It's very difficult for God to be unjust to us if he doesn't owe us. Uh, later in Exodus, in chapter 9, after six of the ten plagues, so just, uh, just over halfway through, God says to Pharaoh, by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God could have destroyed Pharaoh completely already. But he hasn't. Because he has a bigger purpose. Even God is not neutral. Right? Because God has a plan. He's got a plan that he's going to carry out even if people oppose him. God has allowed his enemy, his enemy Pharaoh, to be a king of this mighty empire and to even 
enslave his people and he spared Pharaoh thus far. And why? So that God can show him his power and proclaim his name to the whole world. Because God is is not an idol. He's the true God and he wants people to know how he's different to an idol. He wants people to know how different he is, his power and his character. Verse 22 and 23 picks this up. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? I think Paul is saying here, imagine if, imagine if God is so merciful that he can even use Pharaoh, who is desperately and defiantly opposed to him. He can even use Pharaoh for his purpose of showing mercy. What if God can even uh, use Pharaoh and that's why he hardens him? Because God is not neutral. He's got good purposes in mind. He's going to reveal his goodness and mercy to the world. Pharaoh is already opposed to God. He's prepared himself for destruction and is an object of God's wrath. But God doesn't destroy him straight away. He bears with him patiently. And so Israel, plus lots of people from other nations, we're told in Exodus, who join them, can see the power and the glory of the true God. So God is not an idol. We're not neutral. And God is not neutral either. He wants to reveal himself and show his glory. More than anything else, this is what drives God. Okay, but if this is God's purpose, if God uses people opposed to him to show his glory, uh, then how can he also blame them and hold them accountable? Verse 19 picks this up. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? If God hardens those opposed to him and uses them to reveal his glory, can he also blame them then for their sin? That's the question, basically. And the answer, essentially, is God is not a politician. God's not a politician. Here's what I mean. Politicians are leaders that we elect. Scott Morrison is the Prime Minister because we voted him in. If we think Dan Andrews is not looking after our interests, uh, then we'll hold him accountable at the ballot box. We expect them to serve our interests first and foremost, and they're accountable to us for that. And that's because, uh, ultimately, Scott Morrison is not anyone special. He's just another human like you and me. Dan Andrews is not Superman. Jacinda Ardern is not the saviour. They're all fallible humans who derive their power from the people that they lead. But God is not a politician. We don't get to, to vote him in. He doesn't get his power from having our support. He's not obligated to answer to us because he's not our equal. Verse 20 and 21 uh, says this, 
But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? It's humbling stuff to be called a pot. And maybe it feels like a cop-out from Paul. Stop asking difficult questions. God doesn't have to answer you. So is Paul just trying to get himself out of a theological bind here? Maybe. But if we remember back to the Old Testament, we remember that God has always revealed himself like this. To Job, who's complaining about his suffering, God says... Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Through Isaiah the prophet, as Kate read for us, he says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? And who can can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? God is our creator, and we are the creatures. It's like a potter with the clay. Parents, do you justify your every decision to your children? You try to, I know, you try to explain why you're doing things, but you can't explain everything, and nor should you have to explain everything. There are some things that your kids are too young to understand. It might change as they, they grow, but particularly when they're young, you don't. And that's, that's amongst humans. How much more so between us and God? If there were no aspects of God's plan that were mysterious or didn't totally make easy sense to us, wouldn't that be a major red, red flag? Wouldn't that be a problem? Wouldn't that suggest that we have made God in our image and not the other way around? God is not accountable to us for every aspect of his plan. He's not a politician. God is not a politician. And that's good news. I don't think I need to tell you why that's good news. So I can't neatly wrap everything up today. Perhaps this passage just leaves you with more questions. But hopefully they're better questions. Deeper questions. Paul is not saying you can't ask God your your questions. As a teacher, I know that there's a big difference between students who ask challenging and provocative questions as they wrestle with things on the one hand and students who, who talk back out of defiance and distrust. Paul warns us against talking back out of distrust and defiance but he gives space to our questions. This whole section of Romans is devoted to responding to likely questions. So, is God unjust? What could I say to my friend Tim? I could say no, because God is not a vending machine who we can manipulate to get what we want. He is free in how he shows mercy, and that's good news for those who can't pay. I could say no, because nobody's neutral. 
we reject God and are justly condemned and, and God is not neutral because he is committed to his plan of showing his mercy and glory. But I'm sure there'll still be questions. And ultimately, I might have to say, that's okay, Tim. I can't answer it all because I'm not God. And while God is open and honest with us, he's not accountable to us. So, Tim, at the end of the day, God's mercy remains. Will you trust him? Will you trust his mercy? And friends, that's my final encouragement to you. God's mercy is deep and profound. It's it's beyond us. We can't fathom it. So let's continue to trust our maker even as we wrestle with his unsearchable ways. Let's pray together. Loving Father, we thank you so much for your mercy. We thank you for the freedom you have to show mercy, that you show genuine love and compassion to us. We thank you for uh, revealing your mercy and glory in how you show that mercy to people who can't afford it, to each one of us. Father, please continue to show your mercy. Particularly think of those we love and care for who we would love to know your mercy. And Father, please help us as we wrestle with questions bigger than our minds can contain. Help us to walk with you in faith. Help us to trust you as our maker and to to grasp our limits as as your creatures that we might also be people who live to reveal your glory and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, we're about to respond in in song as we, we sing praise to God, so please stand.